Thank you, Doug. Thank you, and um, wonderful to be with you again this morning. What a beautiful day in Minnesota today, just gorgeous weather, and thank you for your warm welcome. We just love being with you. Um, I'm the Dean of the Graduate School, and eight years ago, um, we started our graduate programs at Trinity, and they've grown exponentially. We now have over 150 uh, students in our graduate programs, and um, we have students from now 17 nations around the world that join us in our graduate program. So we're excited at what God's been doing at Trinity, and I'm excited about it in the graduate school. I'm the dean of the graduate school, and we just love what God's doing. And we've got a short video of somebody just telling you what the graduate school means to them, so we're going to run that now. Hi, my name is Brad Rosenberg, and I was a senior pastor in Cincinnati for many years at Tri-County Assembly. Recently, I transitioned to the chief program officer at Convoy of Hope. But while I was a pastor, I was always searching for ways to grow and learn and expand, and Trinity helped me do that. I've always been an avid reader and like to uh, expand my thoughts and, and search into new areas of learning. But the missional leadership program at Trinity stretched me in ways I never dreamed. It required me to read in areas I wouldn't have sought on my own, and it allowed me to process and learn systems and information that otherwise on my own I just probably wouldn't have come across. And so if you're looking for something to stretch you, if you're looking for something to take you to the next level, if you're looking for ways to expand your vision of the world, uh, I would encourage you greatly to look at the Missional Leadership Master's Program at Trinity. The professors were very insightful. They took time with me. They helped me work through issues that I was struggling with or grappling with. The Alexanders are excellent leaders. And I believe that if you want that extra push, to stretch yourself in ways you haven't been stretched before, this is what you're looking for. This is the answer. So please take some time today, give someone at Trinity a call, and uh, I highly recommend the Masters in Missional Leadership. So God bless you. Hope you enjoy your journey. And we'll be at the back afterwards if you want any information, and we're also there with our books. So. <clears throat> This morning I want to uh, speak about forgiveness. Um, forgiveness was a stone's throw away, and you will know the story as I read it. It'll come up on the screen. It's a story found in John chapter 8 and verses 2 to 11. So I'm going to read this, just listen to it or follow it on the screen. John 8 verses 2 to 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down 
and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. A very powerful and profound passage of scripture. And um, one of the gospels that I love intense, intense, very intensely is this book of John. I don't know, it's just a little bit different to the other gospels. And um, you find so many interesting encounters that Jesus has. And he had the encounter with the woman at the well in John chapter four. And then I love that beautiful story of Mary at the tomb. Just some lovely um, stories about women and Jesus and the way he dealt with them. And here we have this amazing story um, where Jesus is writing in the sand, this woman he's brought. We know very little about the, the, the situation. You know, I don't know if this woman was dragged from her bed. It, it would appear that she was just dragged from the room and, and brought to stand before Jesus. Maybe she was standing there naked, feeling whatever it was, she was feeling very vulnerable and very exposed. She may have just grabbed a piece of linen and had that wrapped around her. But what a moment for her. What, what an, a humiliating and intense moment. And I think that if you stop to pause and look at the times in which um, Jesus was speaking and understand the context, it really brings the whole story to light. If you know anything about the situation of women in that day, you'll know that women were at the bottom rung of the ladder. If you know anything, you know that they couldn't vote, they couldn't testify in a court of law, they couldn't own property. In fact, women were the property of their fathers and then of their husbands. Women were at the very bottom rung of the ladder. And every story you read, you see how Jesus brought dignity to women. He brought dignity and he, he showed their worth and their value and who they really were. And so I love this story. But there's some things that I learn in the story that I think are important for us to take note of. And I think the first thing I see in this story is that Jesus' method was unconventional. His method was unconventional. You know, many of the stories you read of, his method was unconventional. I mean, I couldn't imagine starting a sermon, bending down and writing on the floor, trying to grab your attention that way. I don't know what Jesus, were, I mean, many people have got caught up in the, what was he riding in the sand and spent hours in debate on what that could have been. I think that's useless time because we'll never know what he was doing. I just know that it's interesting and captivating that he used that method maybe to gain their attention, maybe to give them pause, 
Um, well, it certainly did give them pause when he, he knelt down after he'd said, the person without sin throw the first stone. His methods were so unconventional. You think of the way he dealt with the woman at the well. What an unconventional method. Jesus used very unconventional methods. The woman at the well, he says, give me a drink of water. I mean, what a way to start a sermon. You know, give me a drink of water. And then you think of the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, if I had a group like this, I wouldn't start up by saying, we're going to feed you all. We're going to give you some loaves and some fish and, or some pizza, and then, then, we'll, then we'll have the sermon. Just unconventional. Jesus' methods were so unconventional. Jesus uses unconventional people and he often uses very unconventional methods. I often wonder why Jesus used a South African in North Dakota. I mean, why? <laughs> from the, the tropics of, of, um, uh, of the area that I came from to the freezing cold of North Dakota, and yet God uses unconventional people and he uses unconventional methods. I think I told a story many years ago, but it bears repeating of the unconventional methods that are used sometimes to win people to Jesus. We have um, very good missionary friends in Canada. The man has gone to be with Jesus now, but his wife is still a powerful evangelist. And they told us a story of a person that they knew. They said one day she was coming home from church and as she was driving past the laundromat, the very weirdest thought came into her head. It was so weird. This is the thought. Go down to the laundromat, stand in front of the Coke machine, and do a handstand. Well, now, you get a thought like that, and you I don't know about you, but I start rebuking the devil, because that, that is weird. That is totally weird. So she... Uh, this thought just persisted through the day and, and it just persisted and, and she could not get rid of this thought. So eventually she said, okay, God, I don't know what is going on here, but I promise you, Lord, I will do what you are asking me to do, albeit very weird, but I'm going down to that laundromat at five to five just before it closes and there better be nobody in that laundromat, and I'll do my handstand to the glory of Jesus. So she, she goes into the laundromat, and she looks in, and she sees nobody's there. It's five to five. She goes inside, and she looks around, and she does her handstand quickly and then stands up, and she goes, okay, thank you, Jesus. I hope that blessed you. And, um, and when she finished the manager came out of his office and he said, ma'am, wait, please just wait there, wait there. And she thought, oh boy, he saw me. And um, he said, ma'am, would you just come with me into my office for a minute, please? And uh, she went into his office with him and on his desk was a loaded gun. He said, ma'am, I was going to lock this door at five o'clock this evening. I was gonna walk into that office and I was gonna take my life. He said, but before I did, he said, I prayed a prayer. I said, if you God and you are there, and then he thought, what's the weirdest thing God could ever do? <laughs> he said, 
So I just said, God, if you're there, if you are God and you do not want me to take my life, send a woman into this uh, laundromat and let her do a handstand in front of my Coke machine and I'll believe you, God. The end of the story was that that man there and then gave his life to Jesus and his life was turned around from death to life. Because you know what, friends? God often uses unconventional methods and he uses unconventional people to bring about his purpose and his plan in people's lives. I love that story. I love the story of Elizabeth Fry. Do any of you remember learning about Elizabeth Fry in history or in social studies? She was a Quaker woman. Maybe you didn't because she was British, but we certainly learned about her. Um, you learned about all your great American heroes. We learned about all of them as well, but also about our British heroes. And um, Elizabeth Fry was a, a Quaker woman and a very wealthy family. So everybody knew the Fry family. They were very, very wealthy. And um, Elizabeth Fry's life wasn't very fulfilling. You know, it was those days where women wore those, you know, those crazy dresses that tuck you in at the waist and you can hardly breathe but you look good and um, and those were the days where women you know would the Victorian ages where they'd go for tea parties and they'd sit and drink tea very good custom actually but they'd sit and drink tea and I guess the women would have their little fans and you know you read in Jane Austen about women going for tea parties and then fainting and then they'd have smelling salts and bring them around and I don't know was it cool to faint I think it was somehow a socially accepted pattern of life in the Victorian age just to go to a party and faint and, <gasps> and then get the smelling salts and be revived. And so Elizabeth Fry would go to these tea parties and faint and go to more tea parties. And I guess one day she got tired of it and she said, Lord, there must be more to life than tea and fainting. And um, so one of the things that they used to do in those days for entertainment, believe it or not, very crazy, but people would go and have a picnic on a Sunday afternoon outside the woman's prison. And what they would bring, they'd bring all the women out just for an afternoon. And people would go and, and sit and watch the woman and just have a fun day as they saw these crazy imprisoned women screaming and yelling and scratching and fighting and pulling out each other's hair and using abusive language. And they'd sit and picnic and laugh and it was entertainment for them. Can you believe that? That was entertainment in those days. Yeah, you can say it, the Brits are crazy. I think so too. So, but you know, I can think of better ways to entertain myself, but that's what they would do. And one day Elizabeth Fry said, surely I could do something about this. And one morning she got up with a sure knowledge that God was with her. And she walked down to that prison and the warden knew her immediately. She said, sir, open the gates. I'm going to go into the prison today. And he looked back at her and said, Mrs. Fry, you cannot. She said, why? He said, because these women will tear you to pieces. Have you not seen what they do on Sunday afternoons? But something about when you know God's got his call and destiny on your life gives you an authority and a strength and a courage. And she said, sir, 
I'm going in, will you open those doors? And he said, at your own risk, ma'am. And she walked in, and as she walked in, she heard the screaming and the yelling and the screeching, and then all of a sudden, the place went quiet. And Elizabeth Fry bent down, and she began to touch some of those women who'd never, ever felt a gentle, compassionate, loving human touch. They'd only felt the slap of a hand, the beat of a fist. They'd never felt the touch of compassion, the touch of God's love. And God moved through that prison that day and Elizabeth Fry was able to minister to those women. Do you know they say that six months later, if you went back to that prison, you would not have recognized it. The stench was gone. The bad language was gone. The women were sitting quietly, singing hymns, reading the word. Something incredible happened. God used an unconventional woman and unconventional methods to touch and reach people. And Jesus is still doing that today, just as he did with this woman, just as he did throughout his lifetime on earth, Jesus uses unconventional methods. But listen to the second thing I note from this story. His mercy was unconditional. His mercy was unconditional. You have to just understand the context. I've already spoken a little bit about women were, where women were in the, this, this um, first century context, what they were at the bottom rung of the ladder. But you've got to understand, do you know that every morning a religious Jewish man would stand at the bottom of his bed and say, I thank God that I'm not a slave. I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. And I thank God. God, I'm not a woman. That's how they'd start their day, by thanking God for those three things. I thank God that I'm not a woman. And here's this woman. You know, the question begs, where was the man? Because it takes two to tango. Where was the man? Where was he in all of this? He was evidently absent. And now it required that this woman be stoned. Do you know that in the first century, a rabbi couldn't even speak to a woman in public. He couldn't even speak to a woman in public. It was just not part of the social norm. It defied the custom of the day. It was unconventional. And here Jesus, in this beautiful moment, shows this woman absolutely unconditional mercy. Don't you love this Jesus, this incredible Jesus who his arm is so long that it doesn't matter how deep in the pit a person's sin has gone, how deep they've sunk in their sin and degradation, his arm is long enough to pick them up and pull them out. Jesus is a merciful God. You look at the woman at the well, what an, what an amazing story. What an incredible story. That, you know, it says in that passage, read chapter four in your own quiet time. It says, when the disciples came back from finding food, they saw Jesus speaking to a woman. I mean, I can imagine Peter going, oh my goodness, what now? 
what now? Look at him. And then this woman is so excited. She, she's just been, I, I can imagine the transformation in her. She's so excited. She runs into town. She says, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did is not, this not the Christ. Such a change, such a, a transformation. Because his mercy was unconditional. This woman married five times. And this man she's living with now is not her husband. And yet Jesus shows her unconditional mercy because that's who he is. He's a merciful God and he will always show unconditional mercy. You know, I love the contrast between, because, you know, sometimes we think Jesus was just with the marginalized and he was. He was with the prostitute, the sinner, the tax collector. But, you know, if you look at John chapter 3, he spent his time with Nicodemus. Compare Nicodemus and the woman at the well. I mean, one was a woman, one was a man, one came at night, the other one was broad daylight. Um, one had a name, one didn't. The woman had no name, we don't know her name. He was an upstanding citizen, she was the lowest of the low. She was a nobody, he was a somebody. Jesus loves everybody. His mercy is unconditional. He loves the center. He loves the marginalized. His mercy is unconditional. But listen to this. It's important for us to note this, especially in the day in which we live. His message was confrontational. You know, he accepted the woman. He said, woman, where are your accusers? She said, sir, they've gone. There's no one left. And he looked at her and then with unconditional mercy, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. But then what does he say? He confronts her. He says, now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Friends, we've got to preach the whole gospel We've got to preach that Jesus loves people unconditionally. And our churches have to be open places. You know, I think some churches have, you know, sign boards that nobody can see them, but every, the message that the, the church gives out is, we accept sinners, normal sinners. We don't want abnormal sinners. We don't want people that do this stuff. If you do this stuff, that's normal sin. You know, welcome to our church. But this stuff, oh, we don't know how to handle it. Don't come here. I think our churches have to be open to everybody, friends. We've got to have an open place for people to come because Jesus' mercy was unconditional. But his message is also confrontational. We still need to confront people with the message of the gospel, that they need change in their lives, that they need to come to Jesus. We cannot allow culture to shape us, friends. That's what we've done too many times. We've allowed the culture to shape us instead of the word of God shaping our culture and us shaping our culture by our values and our morals. We've got to preach a confrontational message that stops people in their tracks. Listen to what Leslie Newbigin said in this book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Please take note of this. I'm going to read it slowly so that it sinks in. The relativism, and we all know that we live in a relativistic world today where every truth is acceptable. There's no one truth. Your truth is your truth. The relativism, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, is an evasion of the serious 
business of living. It is a mark of the tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture, and it is a preliminary symptom of death. Friends, can I call you again to preach the word, to be instant in season, to be merciful and unconditional in your love and your mercy and your acceptance of all men, women, color, race, gender, whatever it is, the complications of the contemporary culture in which we live and we have to navigate, but can I also call you to preach truth? Can I call you again to preach the truth of the gospel? Why do we wanna water down the message of the gospel? Why do we feel so compelled to make the gospel fit with our culture because this is the way our culture is going. So we better shape it, you know, to fit in with the culture. Why? Do we not believe that God's word is powerful? Do we not believe that God's word is still changing hearts and lives today and that his word is quick and powerful and we don't have to add or take away from God's word. We just have to preach the gospel and believe the truth of God's message and his word and know that it will work change in people's lives. Can I call you again to preaching the truth of the gospel that Leslie Newbegin talk, talks about? I know that they say there are many paths that lead to God, but I can tell you right now, the word of God says, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth and Jesus is the life. And I'm telling you friends, he is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Now please, when you preach the gospel, don't be arrogant and say, you know, go out there and say, oh, if you don't believe the way I believe. There's a way of saying it, friends. There's a way of being really grace-filled in the way we preach the gospel, but let's not water down the truth because we've done that a bit too much. We've tried to shape our message to fit the cultural context instead of believing that our message is powerful enough to shape and change the culture in which we live. And that's what we wanna do at Trinity. We wanna raise up a generation of godly men and women that will fill the pulpits of this land, that will go to different parts of the world, that will, that will plant churches and preach an unadulterated gospel that changes the lives of men and women. This message is confrontational. His ministry was transformational. I, I love it. I love it because we don't know what happens to this woman, but I imagine an encounter with Jesus like that. She went and led a very different life. We do know what happened to the woman at the well. You know, we know that her life was completely transformed. She went into the, the village and she said, come see a man. And I can imagine they all go, oh boy, another one. You know, number seven now, what is it? And yet she said, but this man has changed my life completely and a whole village comes to Jesus. That's the power of the gospel, friends, that it can change our communities. It transforms lives. I've just seen this in my own family's lives. My younger sister, um, she went her own way, raised in the same family, heard the same messages, um, 
my brother's a missionary in India, my sister and her husband were in ministry, we've been in ministry, and then my young sister just went her own way, and one relationship failure after the other, just going her own way, doing her own thing, breaking our parents' hearts. And um, about 18 months ago, Paul looked at me and he said, you know, I think we should pray that Tracy comes to Jesus before your mom and dad go to heaven. My dad's 95, my mom's 93. Um, and I kind of, do you know this look where you roll your eyes and, you know, like, I kind of did that in my head when he said it. Like, we've prayed for this girl for years, nothing's happened, you know. And now you want us to commit to really praying for her before mom and dad die? Wow, that's a bit of an ask. But at any rate, every morning we just bring Tracy before the Lord and ask God to do something in her life. And she began to reach out to me. She began to ask me questions. She began to reach out. And then during COVID, she had a stroke and left her blind for a while. And she came out of that and decided that she wanted to go back to university and um, study veterinary science and you know, one could, I know some people think faith and science are incompatible and a lot of atheist and agnostic people think that and my sister could have been in the, was in that category of being very agnostic. And um, she started to study science and one day she said, there is no way anybody but an incredibly amazing God could have made this world. And somehow in her science class, she found Jesus. You know, I was praying she'd go to church and hear a fiery gospel message and run to, the, I saw this picture in my head of a fiery preacher saying, you better come to Jesus before your undying soul goes to a lost eternity. And I saw my sister running down the altar and weeping and saying, yes, me, me, me. And then she gets saved in a science class. I mean, hello, Lord, you know. He, he just uses such unconventional methods to reach people. And, and, and don't try to think of ways in which God can meet your need or the thing you pray about because God's going to use an unconventional way. But her life was transformed. Don't you love it that Jesus is still transforming lives today? Don't you love it that Jesus is still changing the hearts and lives of men and women today because his word is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And the same word that was handed to us many years ago is the same word that our young people are gonna take with power into the world and see men and women's lives transformed. It's a be just, just a beautiful message. And then the final thing that I wanna say about this portion of the text, how beautiful it is, is his mission was incarnational. <clears throat> you know, I know um, we use the word missional and incarnation in, in different ways, but do you know that the word missional is actually, don't complicate that word, please. It's a very simple word. Um, David Bosher, uh, a missiologist, explained it this way. He said, God the Father sent God the Son. God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit send you. That's what missional is. It's not going to some foreign, fancy culture. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit inside of me, sending me into the world. 
Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what this message is about. Somebody used the illustration of incarnational means God moves into the neighborhood. How does God move into the neighborhood? He moves into the neighborhood through you and through me. By us living our lives, embodying the truth of God's word and living our lives there incarnationally because his, his mission is incarnational. Let me end with a story. <clears throat> it's an incarnational story. Um, a friend of ours living in Australia was invited to our country, South Africa, to preach at a minister's conference. And um, so he went out and uh, he was all ready to preach at this minister's conference. And on the way that he's driving to speak at the conference, he suddenly hears God's voice in his head. And he turns to his wife and he says to his wife, God's told me to preach a gospel message in the pastor's meeting. So his wife said, well, you better listen. And he said, yeah, but it's a pastor's meeting. How can I preach a gospel message in a pastor's meeting? She said, well, you never know. Some pastors may need Jesus, whatever. Um, so she, but she just said to him wisely, be obedient. What they didn't realize was something was happening on the other side of town in Cape Town in a church there was an associate pastor, and for years he'd had a burden for the street woman in Cape Town. He just had a burden for the red light district. And he kept going to the women's group and saying, won't you go and do something, you know? I'm really concerned about these women. And they never, they never got the vision, they never got the burden. And one day he was on his knees and he was praying, <clears throat> and um, he, he heard something extremely unconventional. And he thought, oh my word, this is weird. I better go and share it with the pastor. So he goes to the pastor and the pastor goes, wow, that's really different. You better tell your wife. So he goes and he tells his wife and she said, ooh, you better go tell the pastor. So he knew he was covered. He told everybody he needed to. And this is what he felt God wanted him to do. So this was like, 20 years ago where people still wore suits and ties. I don't know if the millennials here know what that is, but it's like, it's like a jacket that men wear and they put a, a thing around their neck to their shirt. It's just something they used to wear many years ago. And lots of pastors would wear that kind of thing with this tie thing strangling them, and, but they wore it at any rate. And um, they'd sweat on very hot days, but they, they did it. And so he was dressed in this suit, this thing that they wore many years ago. And he got the church bus, and it, the church bus said something like, new life, you know, fellowship. And he drove the bus down to the red light district. So get the picture in your head, okay, because this is quite unconventional. So there's a bus, there's a pastor dressed in a suit, and he goes up to the first street woman, and he says to her, how much for three hours? And she tells him, he says, okay, get on the bus. So she gets on the bus, then he goes up to the next woman, he says, same thing, how much for that? She tells him, he says, okay, fine, get on the bus. He goes to the next woman. By the fifth woman, there's a little bit of a group gathering around this bus. And looking at this pastor with this bus, and he's starting to fill it with women, and they, 
I don't know what they were thinking, but they must have been thinking, this guy is a weirdo. Any rate, he gets to 14 women and he's run out of money because he felt that God wanted him to take all of his savings out of his bank account and use his money in this way. And so when he had 14 women on the bus, those savings were gone. But he got onto the bus and all 14 women were on the bus. He said, good afternoon, ladies. They said, good afternoon. He said, "Um, I've got you for three hours, right? They said, yes. He said, good, I'm taking you to church. Well, I think they were probably glad. I think they were, you know, we're gonna, this'll be different. And the only thing was, there's only one meeting going that night, and it was a pastor's conference. When these women walked into church that night, they did not look like pastor's wives. (laughs) Everybody was looking at them. The Australian pastor had no idea that these women were in the congregation. He had just felt led that he preached a gospel message. He preached a gospel message that night, and when he gave the altar call, 14 women walked up to the front, bowed their hearts and their lives, and Jesus came in and did something very amazing in their hearts and lives. And the amazing thing is, he said that three years later, when he went back to visit that city again, he said, those women were all serving Jesus and they were winning other women to the Lord because this is an incarnational gospel. It changes lives, friends. It changed lives 2,000 years ago and it is still changing lives today. And you know that God is calling us to take this amazing, beautiful message, this unadulterated message with confidence into the world. Let me finish with a quote from Leslie Newbigin as well, but in another book called Foolishness to the Greeks. And let me end with this challenge. Leslie Newbigin says this in somewhat old English style. He says, from whence comes the voice that can challenge this culture on its own terms? A voice that speaks its own language and yet confronts it with the authentic figure of the crucified and living Christ so that it is stopped in its tracks and turned back from death. Friends, I'm asking you at Lake Geneva today, Will you be that voice? Please don't say I'm past it. Please don't say it's now a day for young people. Please, whatever your position is, whoever you are, whatever your age, whatever your gender, I'm asking you, will you be that voice that speaks at times in unconventional ways, but tells a message, a beautiful, beautiful message of his unconditional mercy. 
that you confront people with the truth of the gospel so that their lives are absolutely transformed and turned to Jesus. If we have that total commitment to Jesus, friends, our nation will change shape. Because I want to tell you now, the hope of the United States is not D.C. Pray for your president, pray for your, your congressmen, pray for your senators, but friends, the church is the hope of the world. And I'm calling you at Lake Geneva on this beautiful Thursday morning. I'm asking you with everything inside of me, will you be that voice that preaches the unadulterated message of our beautiful incredible Jesus. Will you be that voice? I'm going to ask somebody to come and play quietly on the keyboard now and just going to spend a few moments in quiet prayer and reflection. I just think sometimes it's so important that we do stop and pause and let God's word run deep into our hearts and our lives. And I think that it's in times and places like this where we can make very bold and determined decisions and say, yes, God, I want to be that voice. I want to be that voice that speaks the language of the culture, but that confronts it with the crucified and living Christ so that it is stopped in its tracks from death. If you want to be that voice, please, will you do me a favor? Not for me, but for Jesus. Won't you stand to your feet now and say, I'm going to be that voice, God. I'm going to be that voice that speaks out. Oh God, give me boldness and courage to be that voice in this generation. Because I believe that if every one of us bow and yield and bend to Jesus and say, use my voice, he'll use us all differently. Sometimes unconventional ways and methods. But I believe that we can see this nation turn back to Jesus. Because we, the church, are the hope of the United States.